0: Hebrews chapter 2, Then if you'd like to follow along, I'm just going to read the words uh, from article 19 in our Confession. Sorry, that's not in the bulletin. That's obviously my mistake. I don't know what I was thinking. Deb asks me, I check the bulletin on Thursdays before she sends it in. She asks me time and time, is it all in there? Is it, you know. And I say yes, and I, it's obviously not. So this is, that is clearly my mistake. So, uh, Belgian Confession, Article 19. And uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. God's word given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, Here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be like his brothers, be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. And then I'm on page 78. If you'd like to follow along, I'll just read this for us. But Article 19, Article 19 of our Confession of Faith, the union and distinction of the two natures in the person of Christ. It says, We believe that by this conception, the person of the Son is inseparably united and connected with the human nature, so that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single person. Yet each nature retains its own distinct properties. As then, the divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth, so also has the human nature not lost its properties but remained a creature, having beginning of days, being a finite nature, and retaining all the properties of a real body. And though he has by his resurrection given immortality to the same, nevertheless he has not changed the reality of his human nature, for as much as our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body." But these two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not separated even by his death. Therefore, that which he, when dying, commended into the hands of his father was a real human spirit departing from his body. But in the meantime, the divine nature always remained united with the human, even when he lay in the grave. And the Godhead did not cease to be in him any more than it did when he was an infant, though it did not so clearly manifest itself for a while. Wherefore, we confess that he is very God and very man, very God by his power to conquer death, and very man that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. Considering this article of the Confession, obviously in uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews. It picks up, this article picks up perhaps uh, where we are in the year, just after the Christmas season, thinking a lot about uh, the birth of Christ and heard a lot about the conception birth of Christ in the last number of weeks. So it's an appropriate matter for us to consider uh, at this time. We may ask, uh, wondering about these things, it, it may you know, we may not be able to help as much as we wonder about it sometimes. What was Jesus when he was just a babe uh, born in Bethlehem? What, 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 what was it like when he was in those first few days as a baby? Uh, how does the, the Christian church describe the essence of who that baby was? From uh, before the birth, to the birth, to infancy, to a toddler, to a child, and to an adolescent. These are in many ways... Mysterious things, we, we can't help but wonder about them sometimes. But we ought to remember that scripture is often muted on a lot of these matters. doesn't tell us a lot about the, the childhood of Christ or uh, stories about when he was growing up. We have a couple of them, like for instance when he was left behind uh, at the temple. But we should avoid speculation on, uh, on too much of these things. It's not surprising that uh, a lot of the false gospels that were circulating around the time of the early church often have more stories that center around Jesus as a little boy and, and things that he did when he was a little boy, changing uh, you know, pottery into, into birds and stuff. Gotta be careful, don't hit the microphone too much. Um, changing pottery into birds and these miraculous things, right? If he's God and man uh, as a child, That must have been sort of a a sight to behold, right? We need to be careful about speculation, not surprising that the false gospels delve more into those kinds of things, like the gospel of Thomas. But there are things that we do know. We read in the gospels that he grew and matured in wisdom and knowledge. We can deduce safely, I would say, that the life he lived was a relatively normal one, not necessarily a very remarkable life that he lived up until his ministry. Uh, even to the point where the people of Nazareth have a hard time believing that he's a, a prophet or, you know, uh, certainly the Messiah, but even just a, a prophet. They knew who he was and where he came from. They knew the, the work that he did. Is not this Mary and Joseph's son, they said. Apparently his life was was not so remarkable before his ministry. Even his other siblings, we read in John chapter 7, did not believe in him until later in his uh, ministry. Uh, perhaps because to them he was simply their, their older brother who was maybe a bit odd and whose sinlessness went largely unnoticed by them. But we know that however he appeared in his childhood, in his infancy, in those first hours after his birth, it's amazing to think about that Mary held in her arms the Creator and the Lord and the Savior of the world, astonishing to think of God in the flesh in those ways. But it's this, this area of our thought about our God where most often the church has gone astray or splinter groups from the church have gone astray and gone into dangerous, dangerous and heretical teachings that do not uphold the historic Christian faith. Most of the heresies that we have in the history of the church center around uh, the person of Christ. So we need to be careful about what we believe, what we confess, what we teach. We need to be careful to land where scripture lands so that we may understand a bit more about the, the depth of our wonderful Savior's work for us. Not going to understand and comprehend all of the depth. Uh, there's going to be mystery, but that's, that highlights the, the necessity of confessing Confessing, not saying that we understand every single little bit about it, but confessing what we know about Christ and, and, and believing and trusting that what God's word says is true. We'll take a few minutes then and unpack some things about our confession and, and what the creeds particularly say. The, the orthodox confessions and creeds emphasize a couple of central things. ...that we see woven together in all of these documents about the person of Christ. First is that the Son of God has always existed. He is the second person of the Trinity, thus fully God. And thus he has always had a perfect divine nature. This eternally existent Son of God assumed a human nature. That's a carefully chosen word, what he did. He, He assumed a human nature... The word became flesh and dwelt among us. When the child was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, this is what happened. He assumed a human nature. He did not become a human nature in the sense that it was absorbed. Who he was was absorbed into humanity. He assumed human nature to his person. So the Son of God is uncreated. But his human nature and all that goes with it, the body and soul, the human soul of Jesus of Nazareth, those those aspects are created. His body had beginning of days, as did his human soul, and all of this he assumed as the God man. Foundationally, this means that Jesus has two natures, right? Two natures, divine and human. And these two natures properly belong to. One person, the Son of God. This means that who and what the Son of God was before the Incarnation remained unchanged. All of that that we would have said about him before the Incarnation, that remained unchanged. And what he assumed at his Incarnation, conceived by the power of the Spirit, was true and it was real. And none of that was mixed or confused with what he already was, or who he already was. And so the Athanasian Creed says this about Jesus. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, man of substance of his mother, born in the world, remember, a few weeks ago we talked about how uh, one of the errors that creeps, that has crept into splinter groups of the church, is that they said that Jesus' human nature uh, was not derived from Mary. But this is something the historic church has confessed: the human nature of Christ did derive itself from Mary. It goes on to say, He is perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. Equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into the flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one So, foundationally we have, we're not talking about two persons, we're talking about one person. And we're not talking about one nature, we're talking about two natures. If this is hard to comprehend... Don't worry, you're on the right track. It should be. It is hard to comprehend. We're never going to fully comprehend the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God. But that does not mean that we do not meditate on it. That does not mean that we do not teach it and try to learn more about it. It does not mean that we do not adore Jesus as the Son of God, as God and man, and what he partook of in order to accomplish our salvation and our redemption. It doesn't mean that we do not seek God's wisdom in learning about it. It does not mean that we do not take the time to confess it and to make sure that we believe it, even if we don't comprehend it fully. We find these truths in God's word. And a couple of words that highlight some important guideposts, just to to think for a few more moments about these creeds and these uh, confessions. When it talks about the human nature and the divine nature uh, uh, coming together, the person of Jesus Christ, uh, the creeds have said that what happens, the joining of these two together happens without conversion, composition, or confusion. Conversion, composition, or confusion. Just to summarize those. First, conversion. That means that the divine nature is not changed into the human nature. Right? The divine nature does not change itself into the human nature. Therefore, there's no conversion. The divine and the human do not coalesce so as to form a third entity. Right? They, don't, they don't mix together to form something new, like uh, putting a bunch of ingredients together to cook something else. They, the divine, they don't coalesce to form a third entity. Thus, there's no composition. And the two natures are not mixed, so there's no confusion. So this happens without conversion, composition, or confusion. Much more could obviously be said. But uh, with that in mind and with those foundations and those guideposts, we turn to the book of Hebrews so that we might show why it is, why it is that it's so important that we hold to these things, why, why it is that it's so important that we confess them and that we understand something about them. Because here we see that without Jesus being true God and true man. It's important also to to say that. Sometimes people say 100% God, 100% man. Probably better to say true God and true man. True God and true man. This highlights some of the mystery of it. Without Jesus being God-man. Without Jesus, without the Son of God being incarnated into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And being born with a human nature and body and Soul. We cease to have any redemption from sin. I mean, that is how central this teaching is. Without without Jesus, the God man, we have no redemption from sin. There's no salvation from sin. Man cannot ascend to God, we can't overcome our separation from God or our estrangement. From God. We need to be brought to God, and we are brought to God by our merciful and faithful high priest, by Jesus, who acts as a priest towards God and towards man. A priest, that, that mediator, that intercessor, the one who stands between. So we see in, in Hebrews chapter two, we see that Jesus only redeems what he assumes. He only redeems what he assumes, and that is why his having a true human nature is so important, because what he does not assume, he does not redeem, thus highlighting the importance of him truly being uh, a man. We understand uh, that as we look to these things, uh, we understand more the depth of it and the importance of it. He, only, he also only redeems that which he is able to redeem. Only true God could, in his person, bear the weight of the call that had been placed upon him. Remember the, the end of Article 19. It says that it, his being true God allows him to, to bear uh, the weight of, of his responsibility and his mission, to shoulder the weight of bearing the curse of sin. So in, in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2, The author says that uh, the course of salvation in Christ was fitting, fitting, sort of an aesthetic kind of word. It is fitting, it's right, there's something that that makes sense about it, there's something that just, it, it works well with reason and when we begin to understand more about it we say it is fitting, it's fitting that God would redeem us in the way that he did. Up until this point, Hebrews has uh, put forth this idea of the ideal man, the ideal human being, and it plays off of Psalm 8 for that. Psalm 8 is this psalm that sort of puts forth what it is that man ought to be and what he ought to be doing, exercising dominion over the creation and ruling in the stead of God. But of course, in the world, we see something different. The the order that God has prescribed for his creatures, we flipped it on its head so that there's chaos and there's turmoil. All of that is a result of sin. All of that is because we have have forgotten or we have failed to do what God has called us to do uh, covenantally as his creatures. Thus, it was fitting that if God wanted to redeem, and he did, That he would do so in the only way in which the accomplishment of that redemption would perfectly accord with his justice. Remember, we talked about that last week. That in redeeming us and saving us, God does not forget his justice. He satisfies his justice by providing a sacrifice for us. Hebrews is getting at this because man has shirked his calling. The creation has been turned upside down, but in and through the suffering of Christ, there is a holistic solution that comes to the human race so that God is vindicated as both just and justifier. So we read that the author of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. It doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect and then is somehow made perfect through the accomplishment of his mission, but rather that he is is put forth, shown to be all that we need for our salvation. This word for author, author of our salvation, that word for author could mean trailblazer, which is what Jesus is, right? He breaks through into new ground that has not yet been visited, ground upon which we failed to tread. He has brought us into that new creation life. He has brought us beyond what Adam has. He doesn't bring us back into the Garden of Eden. He brings us beyond. He brings us into new creation, confirmed, that which cannot be taken away. But he does it because of who he is as God and man, true God and true man, two natures in one person. Without his suffering as a man, he could not redeem. Without his existence as God, he would not have the power sufficient to shoulder the curse. And That's not to say that in the Garden of Eden, Adam was not really given a true offer of eternal life. But rather, that only a God-man could pull us out of the depths of our sin. Only a God-man could lift us out of the trouble we were in. So there's a fitting ...nature to Christ's work for us. In that even while it is a wondrous display of grace... ...it, it coalesces with reason. It, it makes sense. God puts forth his son in order to satisfy his justice. We see how God executed salvation in a perfectly fitting way. And that fittingness is further exemplified in verse 11. We see the priesthood of Christ brought to our, mi- our minds... ...which remains sort of the main thrust of the rest of this passage... The phrase, the one who makes holy, is a clear invoking of priestly language. This is what priests do. They, they make uh, holy. They make things from, go from common to holy. But that which is made holy are the people for whom Christ works. He makes people holy. Something to notice is that verse 11 seems to particularly have the humanity of Christ in mind. The one who sanctifies and the ones who are sanctified, it says, are from the same family. Really, it just means they're from the same place or the same source. It refers certainly to God the Father who gives a human nature to all of his creatures. He's the source of all life. And that's why you would hop down to verse 14 and the logic continues there with what the author is talking about. Since the children have flesh and blood... Jesus partook of the same, particularly because the flesh and blood which God created and wanted to redeem had been in bondage under the power and dominion of death. Death, our ultimate enemy, that which, which sin caused to reign in the creation. So verse 14 highlights the depth of where Christ had to go. How, how far, how deep does the Savior have to go in order to redeem us? He has to go as deep as the problem. And the problem was death. He did not just have to share in flesh and blood. He had to share in flesh and blood so that he could go all the way to death. That eternal covenant of redemption rooted that rooted and, and, and put forth the road before Jesus... That led to death. It led to the cross. That was what he was going to do. He needed to pass through death in order to redeem from death. So we read in in Hebrews 2, he destroys. There are two things that he does as this priest. He destroys and then he frees. First, he destroys the one who has the power of death. He destroys the one who has the power of death. Satan, our enemy while we read that Christ did do this for the joy that was set before him, he does it not just for the exaltation of his name, though that is certainly, God is ultimately working for his own glory. But the, the, the book of Hebrews is trying to bring to our minds that, yes, but also remember that Jesus works as a high priest for us. He is a high priest for us. So he does it first to destroy the power of death, and then to free us. To free us, it says, who are kept in bondage to the fear of death. That's quite interesting. Uh, the author doesn't just say to free us who are kept under the dominion of death. There's the, the fear, phobos, Greek word for phobia. The, the, who are kept in bondage under the fear of death. Those who live, in other words, in the, in the fear of death are those who live with a clear understanding of the nature of our ultimate enemy. Those who know that, that death is a serious thing, that death means uh, judgment, that death means standing before God, that we will answer to our Maker. All people ought to be gripped by the fear of death. One philosopher puts it this way as he's sort of he's, he's ruminating on his own grief. He, he, he penned this as he was grieving. He says, when we have overcome our absence with phone calls, when we have overcome winglessness with airplanes, when we have overcome summer heat with air conditioning, when we have overcome all these and much more besides, there will abide two things with which we must cope, the evil in our hearts and death. So much about our world that allows us to act like we've got it all figured out. And we're overcoming everything. And ultimately, death is a huge problem for that kind of thinking, isn't it? Because no matter how great the comfort can be in this life, no matter how much we learn to avoid this or that, and those can be wonderful things, co- common grace blessings that are wonderful things that we ought to enjoy. And We have to thank the Lord for the many things He provides us. But if we fail to see the deeper meaning of this life and of this world, There are these two things that will abide with which we must cope, the evil in our hearts and death. Death is such a huge problem for those who act uh, like they can go through this life living the way that they want and not figuring out what to do about the most ultimate questions. But the Lord became a servant, Jesus, God and man. To redeem our flesh and blood, to destroy the one who had the power of death, and to free us from those who were kept by the fear of death. He became like us in every way, yet without sin. He only redeems that which he assumes. He assumes flesh and blood, human nature, true human body, a reasonable soul, so that he might redeem us, body and soul, to be with him. He redeems that which he assumes. Then, as we close tonight, he not only redeems that which he assumes, but he helps the ones he redeems. So he only redeems that which he assumes. Secondly, he helps the ones he redeems. He helps the ones he redeems. This brings us back to the work of Christ as our high priest. Verse 16 says, surely it is not angels he helps. He's not a priest for angels. He's not a priest for, uh, for animals or for plants or for heavenly creatures, and stars in the sky. He's a priest for Abraham's descendants, it says. This verse explains, verse 15, verse 16, explanatory of verse, uh, verse 15, it explains specifically why Jesus was made like us. It was in order to redeem human beings, specifically because people know that a priest only operates on behalf of his people. Thus, if fallen human beings are to be saved, Jesus had to be made perfect through suffering. The Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about the work of Jesus as a faithful high priest. The question goes like this, How does Christ execute the office of a priest? The answer says this, Christ executeth the office of a priest and is once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. You notice how uh, what he does as a priest, he does for us. He offers himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice on our behalf and he continually makes intercession for us, it's all for us. His being a priest is for us because he helps the ones he redeems. He lives uh, to help those for whom he has been made priest. Hebrews 7 says this. Consequently, sort of speaking of culminating, summarizing the work of Christ and the superiority of the new covenant over the old. And to see this once and for all sacrifice being made on our behalf, the the author says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting. See that word again. There's this something about redemption in Christ that you look at it and you say, God did not shirk his justice He gave his son something that that none of us could ever have done. Uh, But he does it in a way that he does not sacrifice who he is. Uh, He does not forget who he is and the character of his person and all of his attributes. And yet he shows and manifests this wonderful, uh, glorious grace that he gives to us in Christ. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners... And exalted in the heavens. And so the book of Hebrews, uh, thinking about the priesthood of Christ and how he redeems that which he assumes, flesh and blood, and then he helps the ones he redeems, it it brings us to the the culmination of this passage at saying that because of Christ, because of the victory that he has won, because of the life that he has won and the new creation blessing that, that he gives to his people, the work that he perfects on behalf of us as a high priest, he then helps us in temptation. He helps us in our temptation. As the Lord and servant, he has fulfilled uh, the covenant of creation. He has lived the life that God commanded from his creatures. Thus what Christ uh, creates for us in passing through the judgment, in, in being that trailblazer of our salvation, he breaks new ground. And what he creates is a real and a true covenantal communion with God. He creates this Fellowship, this vital communion with God, which is what we experience in our union with Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, those who uh, believe in the gospel, who are granted faith in the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, what happens is they're drawn more and more into this vital communion with God through the, the, the work of Christ and through what he has won for us. So when we read that Jesus helps us in our temptation, it's not saying simply that we look to Christ as an example. And you say, wow, look at at how Jesus was so faithful in temptation. I need to be like that. In a sense, that's true. In a sense, we do learn about things from looking at the life of Christ and seeing him as an example. But it's not what this is saying. It is saying that because Christ was tempted and he passed the test, He did not fall into temptation, but he passed the test. He has destroyed the devil's power and freed us from the devil's tyranny by creating as the ideal man, the one who kept the covenant of creation. He has uh, created this loving communion bond that through the power of the Holy Spirit welcomes us more and more into this vital communion by which God sanctifies us. And creates in us good works and works of obedience and works of gratitude by drawing us more and more into the life of Christ. Not just because he is an example, but because of the life that he gives to us in his intercession. And that is why it is so important that as you think about Christ and you set your mind on things above, you think about the heavenly life that he has won for us. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling even now. Paul says, set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. As we think about that, we think about him as someone who was and continues to be both God and man. You have someone who has redeemed you and who continues to work and to intercede for you in the heavens as both God and man. You have a man up there interceding for for you. Yes, a God-man, but a man. So it's important to understand that he continues to be God and man. He does not give it up. And the confession brings that before us and says, you need him to continue to be both God and man so as to create a guarantee of your resurrection. So as to create a guarantee of the eternal life that you will enjoy. That throughout all of eternity... From here on out, Jesus Christ is both God and man. And through that heavenly life that he has created, drawing us into that life. And so we read that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why? Because he brings us into this vital communion. That, that's the, what it means to live in covenant with God. That's the, one of the particular contributions of the reformed faith. That it doesn't just stop at, at being made right with God. There is this, this centrality to the glory of God. That we, we live unto the glory of God. Because we're joined in, in fellowship with him through, through the covenant. Jesus being our mediator and our intercessor. So he helps us uh, in temptation by giving us new life, by by bringing our minds to the glory of God and by making that central. He also helps us in this loving communion bond by creating in us a deeper sense of what I might call the godness of God, that God is God and he is worthy of our fear, he is worthy of our trust, he is worthy of our worship and our adoration. If you go back to verses 12 and 13, particularly 13, there's a couple of quotations from Isaiah 8. And Isaiah 8 is a, a, a prophecy where the prophet Isaiah sets himself up as someone who trusts in God as in opposition to the king of Judah, who uh, feared man and not God. He cut a deal with Assyria. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He cut a deal with Assyria because he feared man and not God. And Isaiah sets himself up as the prototypical servant of God. He says, let God be your fear. Let God be your dread. Don't fear what the world fears. Don't don't worry about all the things that the world worries about. If you know who God is, you must fear Him and you must serve Him. Fear God and Him alone. And this is what Jesus did in His life. He feared God. He showed us what it's like for a human being to fear God. He submitted Himself to His Father's will did not submit himself to man. Thus, in union with Christ, as we are drawn more and more into the life we enjoy in fellowship with God, we are impressed more and more with the Godness of God, with who God is. He is worthy of our trust and our praise and our adoration. We learn how we ought to fear him, not only the Father, but Father and Son and Spirit. Do not fear what the world fears. Do not dread what they dread. Fear God. Fear the creator of your life and your soul. Fear the one who holds the world in his hands. Jesus, the wisest person who ever lived, submitted himself fully to his Father. May we do the same in the life and the fellowship that we enjoy in union with Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for your promises. Thank you for our confession of faith. Uh, that we receive and confess thank you for the creeds of the church that have been passed down to us through the years and we thank you for this faith this apostolic faith that was once for all delivered to us rooted in the final authority of you and your word may we live by it may you draw us more and more into this deep vital communion of the covenant that we may live more and more unto your glory the honor of your name May we fear what you fear. May we not fear what the world does or what they dread. In Christ's name, amen. Respond together by singing number 400.